Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, and welcome to The Victory Kitchen. Today's episode is number 16, That Old Banana Magic. Now, the title of this podcast comes from a newspaper article, The Courier Journal, which is a Kentucky newspaper from August of 1943. The full title is actually That Old Banana Magic Still Weaves Its Spell. (laughs) Now, if you're one of those people who loves bananas like me, this is definitely the episode for you. But if you're like one of my good friends who does not like bananas, I hope you'll still stick around because there is a lot of really interesting stuff that I never dreamed I would dig up when I was researching for this episode. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually didn't know very much about the banana plant itself. So I thought I'd share a little bit about what I've learned. But keep in mind that what I'm reading are things I learned from 1943 newspapers. And I think this is valuable because banana plants have changed over the years. So the bananas that we eat now are not the bananas that our grandparents would have eaten. But I think that banana plants haven't changed so much that none of this information is not valid anymore. So the banana plant is not a tree. It is classified as an herb. It grows from a rootstock with eyes, much like a potato, but larger. It takes a banana plant about a year to mature and grow its bunches of bananas. Due to the tropical climate that they thrive in, bananas are able to be grown year-round. Now, the banana forms from flower, and it grows in clusters, which after time become a bunch from 40 to 160 bananas. The average number is 100, and the average weight of a bunch is from 60 to 70 pounds. The banana fruits grow pointing up. Now, when it comes to the history of the banana in our country, even though the banana was brought to South America from Asia about 24 years after Columbus, it was still a tropical curiosity at the 1876 Philadelphia Centennial, where they sold single bananas wrapped in tin foil as like a novelty. By the 1890s, Imports weren't even enough to really record how many bunches were being brought into the United States. But over the next couple decades, scientists soon discovered its nutritional value and housewives learned how to use it in their cooking. It was seen as a good meat and fat substitute. In the 20s and 30s, you start to see cookbooks dedicated to bananas. And this is where they would teach housewives how to use the banana like what type of ripeness for specific types of recipes and then they would have you know lots of recipes that housewives could try and I did a series on my history blog uh, in 2017 where I had vintage banana Tuesdays I explored some banana recipes and they're they were very creative with their bananas. And I think this is where the obsession 
that Americans had with bananas really started to grow. Now, the banana hit its peak in this early part of the 20th century in 1937, when the U.S. imported more than 10 billion bananas on 66,587,000 stems. The largest banana port was New Orleans, followed by Mobile, Baltimore, and New York. So these were the great banana ports. 50 years after 1890 banana consumption in the U.S. had increased about nine times. So this is just another way of saying that Americans became addicted to bananas. (laughs) They loved bananas. Now, I want to mention that... The history of the banana empire in South America and Central America as tied to the United States has uh, some dark and shadowy corners. Um, I don't have time to go into it in this episode, but I will leave the links of the sources that I found in my resources on my blog that correspond with this episode. Now, this is also something interesting that I did not realize Bananas were sold at the stores and from fruit carts in the bunches, like on the stem many times. The grocer would hang his bunch so the free ends pointed down, which is the opposite of how they grow. But then he would cut off bananas for his customers from the stalk of the banana bunch. Now, we usually see them just in the little bunches at the store. So, yeah, very interesting difference there. And you can see this in... A lot of photographs from early 1900s and I even saw some pictures in the newspapers from the 1940s wartime uh, showing the bananas hanging in the grocery shop and he's cutting off bunches really cool now why did Americans love bananas so much they considered the banana the most sanitary of fruits because like it says in this uh, Hawaiian newspaper from 1942 Bananas are sealed by nature in a glove-like skin that keeps out all dust, which makes them at all times one of the safest and cleanest foods to eat. Uh, Another reason was because bananas have a really distinct flavor unlike anything else you can find. And because of this, it made the banana split a delicacy unto itself. The bananas were easy to stretch, so if you wanted to impart that flavor it was strong enough to you know put it into things like cakes or puddings and you could really stretch the bananas you had available to you it was also versatile you could eat it raw baked or fried served as a fruit or a vegetable or a starch it was inexpensive we all know how much they love talking about nutrition in wartime So the fact that the banana was very nutritious, full of important vitamins like A, B1, G, which is riboflavin, niacin, and vitamin C, and 11 essential minerals. They also claimed that the banana had an alkaline reaction in the body and due to its non-irritating fiber was a mild laxative. But wait, there's more. (laughs) It was easy to digest. And it was an important baby food, as well as an important food for invalids or those with particular diseases, which I'll talk about a little bit later. So those are all of the many reasons why Americans loved bananas. There are a couple famous banana songs that I wanted to point out, one of which 
uh, may be very familiar to you all. It is called Yes, We Have No Bananas from 1927. And uh, I remember hearing this tune when I was a child, just occasionally. And I always thought it was associated with World War II, but it was, yeah, like I said, from 1927. So it had been around for quite some time before the war. But the important thing to note is that they used this song constantly during World War II in newspaper articles. Um, and we will find that out very soon. Um, the second song I wanted to mention is called I Never Saw a Straight Banana from 1923. I have links for these songs that I found on YouTube that I will put in my resources because you will definitely want to uh, listen to these songs. I even found the Muppets had done a version of Yes, We Have No Bananas that you don't want to miss. All right, so let's talk about bananas before the war. Now, the banana isn't good if you leave it to ripen on the tree. So you pick it when it's green, and that makes it an excellent candidate for long-distance transportation. With the advent of uh, traveling refrigeration, like train cars, there also were boats, and this was especially good for bananas. They developed special refrigerated ships to keep them at an even cool temperature for their voyage, along with special ventilated temperature-controlled train cars for the rest of the journey. Bananas had to be kept at a temperature of 57 degrees Fahrenheit, otherwise they would rot or prematurely ripen. Now, I really wanted to talk about this, but I don't have enough time in this episode. But there is an important part of the story involving banana men or banana train attendants. So essentially, they were banana babysitters for the bananas to make sure they arrived in the best condition. Because of wartime train delays and temperatures uh, fluctuating along the route, um, these were a threat for bananas on the last leg of their trip. And there was huge money involved in these banana shipments. So the banana men's job is a very interesting one. And I will have more information on my blog. The bananas were shipped on their stocks and were kept in the stores that way until the grocer cut them off for the customer. And in a 1942 article, it stated that the people of the United States use more bananas than are consumed in any other country in the world. So in these early 1940s, it was very clear Americans loved their bananas. And um, this is very important as we go into World War II. But in 1940, the U.S. imported 52,336,000 bunches of bananas valued at $29,085,000. So about 50 bananas a year were eaten on average by each person in Canada and the United States. That's a lot of bananas. There were some somewhat successful attempts at growing bananas in the United States, like in Florida and California, but where they really thrived was in Central and South America and Hawaii. The major growers of bananas were Brazil, Costa Rica, Mexico, Jamaica, Honduras, the West Indies, Panama, Guatemala, Guadalupe, Nicaragua, and Colombia. Jamaica's banana crop usually went to the UK, while a good majority of the rest of the country's bananas went almost exclusively to the US, but not from Brazil. (laughs) 
Now, I think the most famous aspect of bananas in wartime is associated with England and how British youngsters grew up not even knowing what a banana was. And even I thought that bananas were not available, period, during the war. But this is not true. It might be the case for England for very good reasons. Um, U-boats, for one. So yeah, it was very difficult for England to get bananas. Now, when it comes to the United States, it's a little bit more complicated of a picture. Now, I wanted to be able to answer this question, like, did we get bananas during the war? And in order to do this, I wanted to get kind of a timeline of banana availability in the U.S. by hunting it down in newspapers. So that's what I did. I found articles from 1942 through 45 and and just kind of looked at the headlines. Now, in early 1942, like January, February, the newspapers still referred to bananas as easy to get or that they could depend on a steady supply to fill our needs. A normal year of imports to the U.S. would include 40 million bunches of bananas. Now, in March of 1942, you start seeing articles mentioning the sugar shortage and that bananas were a great sugar replacement for putting on top of cereal, in a fruit cup, or in desserts. And it was because of the sugar shortage and the uh, sugar value in bananas that they were being highlighted. One newspaper reported that scientists wanted to find out exactly how much sugar was in a ripe banana. What they found was that a fully ripe banana, the one with yellow peel and was flecked with brown, contained the equivalent of four to five teaspoons of sugar. So they looked at this as a quick energy food that easily digested in your stomach. Now, in April of 1942, I found an article from Hawaii, which is where some bananas grew, that as a part of their patriotic duty, housewives were encouraged to use the banana more during the war emergency because of how economical and nutritious it was. But later on, their supply actually didn't go very far once the armed forces started buying the bulk of their banana harvest. So that didn't last too long for them. Now, around the same time on the continental U.S., is when we start seeing headlines about a banana shortage. So April is when the first headlines start to hit. One writer who went by the name of S. Hooper Snooper, Washington eavesdropper, had a few cheeky words to say on the subject. He says, quote, There is another song of the dim past which has for its theme, I never saw a straight banana. This is mentioned only for the sake of future historians. It has no bearing on the present situation. We are not in favor of bananas, straight or curved. We aren't against bananas, whatever their condition, except rotten. We are opposed to anything rotten. This is for historical reverence only. But the banana in any and every form is waning. Although bananas are still available today, shipments have fallen off. In Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, for example, shipments are down 75% from last year. Where merchants used to be able to bid on two or three carloads at a time, a half carload makes its appearance. This deplorable condition is deplorable. A shortage exists. That is to put it simply, yes, we have no bananas. Now, what is to be done about bananas? Will Congress appropriate $5 million to relieve the banana shortage? Where will politicians turn for banana oil? 
Can bananas be used for making artificial tires? Will the boys and girls of today spend the next few years without tasting the exotical fruit? These are questions which future historians must answer. In the meanwhile, yes, we have no bananas. Close quote. <laughs> uh, this whole article uh, was had me really cracking up. <laughs> but he makes some important points. The fact that shipments went way down. And where before they had ample bananas to sell, they were very limited uh, on what went to the shops. Now, what was the reason for this shortage? And I bet you could probably guess. <laughs> transportation. Most banana ships were relinquished to the government for transporting war goods. And that makes sense. In a Ohio newspaper from August of 1942, it says, The War Department figures, and rightly so, that it is a little more important at the moment to get tanks, guns, planes, and soldiers to the fighting fronts than to get bananas to Dayton and other cities. Very true. Uh, so those things in wartime were much more important to transport than making sure people had some bananas. Some banana boats were sunk by U-boats. U-boats were a serious threat this early in the war, and bananas were a casualty for the same reason coffee couldn't be imported. One headline in August of 1942 read, Ship sinkings take bananas from markets. It talked about how banana boats, along with oil tankers and other high sea freight haulers, were being targeted by German submarines. Now, to deal with the shortage, some dealers began selling bananas by the pound instead of by the dozen. One dealer in Philadelphia reported that in March of 1942, banana retail prices ranged from 19 to 24 cents a dozen, depending on quality and size. A month later in April, bananas were selling for 40 cents a dozen and higher. Now, the OBA did set a price ceiling for bananas, but the ceiling varied from city to city, partly determined by freight expenses making the calculations quite complicated. And that really does make sense. Like if the big banana ports are on the coasts and you want to get a banana in like Minnesota, it's going to be way more expensive Minnesota than it is going to be in like Baltimore or New Orleans. So by August of 1942, bananas were considered a rarity when once they were very commonplace and abundant to the point that they were used in place of grease on the ways when ships were being launched. That just shows you how common they were at one time before the war. Prices continued to go up, and there were some quoted to be a dollar twenty a dozen or higher if they could be obtained at all, and that the banana growers' economy was a casualty of war. So like that article states, there were huge problems for the banana growers. Like I said before, bananas were grown year-round, so there was lots of bananas <laughs> constantly being grown. Now, banana growers were experts at predicting exactly when a stock of bananas would reach the consumer in time before it got ripe. Part of this skill was in knowing exactly which ships coming into port they would need to get the bananas on to in time. The bananas would be loaded onto the ships via conveyor belt to avoid bumping and bruising. At the banana ports, they either had special cranes to lift them out of the ships or the longshoremen passed the bananas from 
person to person in a chain for unloading into train cars for their final destination. This banana system in peacetime was a well-oiled machine, but in wartime, ships couldn't be counted on, and that created a huge problem for the growers where bananas weren't harvested. Around July of 1942, newspaper articles started highlighting the devastation wartime was having on the banana growers. One article says, In the first place, except for its food value, the banana isn't important to war. Its shipping is. The 100-plus ships that have comprised the banana fleet are now doing service elsewhere. The result? Billions of bananas ripening on the trees, green gold turning to worthless dry rot on more than 3 million acres in the otherwise useless tropical swamps of Jamaica, Mexico, Honduras, and Guatemala. New Orleans, formerly the greatest banana port in the world, isn't a banana port at all anymore. It is hard to conceive of the tragedy this war has brought to the banana growers in good neighbor countries to the south. Now, I don't know if I agree with them that (laughs) the otherwise useless tropical swamps, (laughs) uh, we have to understand this is like from an American uh, perspective in 1940s. Now, the term that he uses, the good neighbor countries, this was a campaign of thought started by Teddy Roosevelt. and, And you can learn more about that in my resources. During World War I, there was a bit of a foreshadowing as they had transportation problems due to the war as well. So banana growers just stopped producing bananas. It was a while before bananas were available again because of this. But thankfully during World War II, the banana growers just kept growing their crop and getting out what they could. So by August of 1943, a year later, Much of the U-boat threat was done away with, and coffee was once again being shipped in large quantities to the U.S. So the reasoning in one Michigan newspaper article was that if the coffee could get shipping space, then bananas couldn't be too far behind, right? The problem, of course, was still getting ships to take bananas that weren't already carrying war supplies. In a different August 1943 article from Kentucky, they said that there are bananas to be had almost every week now, True, some of them are on the small side, but they still have that old banana flavor. Now, remember before that bananas needed to be shipped in like refrigerated, temperature controlled spaces. What we see in a lot of these newspaper articles that if bananas were able to get through, they were usually smaller ones. Now, there was hope on the horizon for these poor, struggling banana growers. According to a newspaper in May of 1944, around 1929, a New Jersey company started producing dried and powdered bananas, not so much for eating, but for pharmaceutical use. Brazil soon started their own banana drying venture. Then in 1937, an American company built a modern drying plant in Honduras to make banana powder for bakers and ice cream makers and for hospitals to use in infant feeding. Soon, equipment was added for drying the whole fruit to sell at retail. So before I said that we did not get bananas from Brazil, what we did import from Brazil was the dried banana products. So by the time World War II comes on the scene, a system was already set up to get a greater supply of dried bananas on the market as a replacement for the fresh The article continues to say that the Honduras plant has doubled its drying capacity to handle from 3 to 4 million bananas per month. Mexico, taking a tip from Honduras, has established 11 drying plants running full-time capacity. 
So obviously the dried stuff in sealed containers could stand longer shipping times and temperature fluctuations. Banana powder was even said to have been originally shipped to Europe before it made its way to the U.S. Being able to dry such a large quantity of bananas saved Honduras a loss of hundreds of thousands of banana stems annually. So this drying technology was a huge boon for these countries producing bananas in a way that they could still support their economy. Now, finding what to do with surplus banana crops wasn't their only problem. A huge amount of labor went into maintaining the banana fields. In another article entitled The Banana, a Barometer of War, Lieutenant Albert C. Huber, St. Louis's Naval Public Relations Officer in 1944, stated, If you think weeding a victory garden is a job, you should see the tropics. Almost overnight, the bush gets out of hand. Tropical grasses grow over your head, and cane reaches a height of about 15 feet. You have to wage a constant battle against iguanas and insects. It's an expensive proposition keeping the vegetation and varmints under control. Without the revenue from banana exports, the owners had to let this work slide. So not only just getting those bananas out, I mean, maintaining the banana fields was really hard. I found a Tennessee headline from November of 1943 that stated, Dehydrated Bananas and Flakes Supplement Small Fresh Stocks. So this is where things get really interesting. Having dried bananas, I find this really fascinating. There were three forms of dried bananas available to them in the 1940s. Powdered, flaked, and dried in big slices. So powdered was more like a flour made from the plantain banana. Flaked was a form of ripe, dehydrated eating bananas. And dried was ripe eating bananas cut into quote-unquote fingers and dried into long chips. Reconstituting the flakes or dried bananas was said to be just like the real thing. The long banana fingers were also called banana figs. The flaked and powdered banana were more delicate in flavor, while the banana fingers had a stronger, oilier taste. And when reconstituted, they were more pulpy and they were hard to push through a sieve. There was a lot of advice in newspaper articles that you needed to keep the containers of any dried banana product tightly sealed as they absorbed moisture and could grow mold. And when you're short on bananas, that's the last thing you want to have happen. The fun thing about these products was that you could put the powder flakes in milkshakes, pies, cakes, puddings, and breads. You could just eat the dried bananas just as they came out of the package. But I have also seen recipes where you break them up or chop them up and put them into pies and cakes. In a November 1943 article in the Salt Lake Tribune, a headline excitedly declared, Yes, we have some bananas! It says, more dehydrated bananas and banana flakes are reported to be coming into food shops to supplement the small supplies of fresh bananas that are occasionally available in the market. For banana flavor, sprinkle a teaspoon of banana flakes over ready-to-serve breakfast cereal or mix it into cooked cereal. You can add a teaspoon of flakes to sweet sauce for covering baked or steamed pudding or add them to creamy sauce for a delicious banana flavor cake filling. Yum. In March of 1943, a Texas newspaper gave two recipes for using dried bananas. One was for banana pie that was like a banana cream pie with a custard filling. The other was for a spiced banana cake. I even found in a few newspapers two recipes using these dried banana products that 
were developed by the Department of Agriculture for housewives to try. Now, I really wanted to know, like, how much of this flake, banana flake stuff equaled one banana? And what I found was that one large tablespoon of the flakes equaled one whole banana. And four ounces of the flakes equaled 20 bananas. I mean, there was this measurement that you could use in cakes and stuff. But what they said was that it really depends on how intensive a banana flavor you want. So it wasn't like a hard and fast rule. You could add more than a tablespoon if you'd like or less if you wanted a a less banana flavor. So it was good to have that flexibility. Now, I came across lots of banana recipes in the newspapers. And if you're familiar with vintage cookbooks, you know that newspaper clipped recipes are frequently like tucked inside the pages or glued on some end pages. I know a lot of my vintage cookbooks are like that. Um, It was a great way to get new, interesting recipes. Well, that is very much the case with banana recipes. And I wanted to share a few of them with you. There are some familiar sounding recipes like banana milkshake, banana donuts, peanut butter and banana sandwiches, banana bread, and banana pancakes. Those sound, you know, pretty recognizable, you know? We have modern equivalents of those. Then there were some creative recipes like yam and banana casserole, banana souffle, glazed banana with guava jelly, butter, and lemon juice, cranberry banana toast, banana surprises. These are a length of pineapple sandwiched between a halved banana and wrapped up in bacon, then broiled. I think I could see that. Yum. (laughs) Then there was banana orange layer pie, ginger ale fruit cups, which was just like fruit salad with bananas in it. But then they pour some ginger ale on top and you eat it like that. Then there's broiled bananas and apple rings, essentially just apple rings with bananas on top, sprinkled with a bit of sugar and broiled. And then we get some really, really creative recipes that you might consider never touching with a 10-foot pole, (laughs) like banana meatloaf, savory banana rice mold, which also had tomatoes, onion, American cheese, mustard, and rice in it. Then there's ham banana rolls with cheese sauce and Mexican meatloaf with bananas. Now, this last one I can actually see if you think of bananas in the sense of a plantain, you know, that that would make sense. By 1944, bananas were still hard to get. And as one newspaper article put it, scarcer than the proverbial hen's teeth. Now, this is when you start to see articles about stretching bananas to provide enough banana taste to go around because sometimes bananas were available, sometimes not. But when you did get them, you wanted to be able to really stretch it out. They had tips for uh, when putting it in fruit salads, you chop up the bananas into smaller pieces, using one or two small bananas for things like banana bread or banana icing, where the flavor can really go really far. The bananas that did come in were either via train from Mexico or small coastal freighters that had no refrigeration. So, and these were the smaller bananas. So I'm guessing lucky people on the coast saw more bananas than people more inland or like in central Canada. Now, I mentioned before that article called The Banana, A Barometer of War. This was a really fascinating article. 
and it warned not to get too excited about fresh bananas. It says, don't start throwing confetti and blowing tin horns next time you see bananas in your grocery store. It's not that good. The war isn't over yet, but the presence of the yellow crescent-shaped fruit indicates that the ship versus submarine situation is well in hand. And then the article ends by saying, The future supply of the fruit will depend upon the warshipping situation. Sweeping our front yard of subs probably will open the lanes for more banana boats. And increased output of the country shipyards may retire some older boats now military service for use in the banana trade. But expanded military operations requiring more shipping space again may cut the supply. So don't pour over predictions of military strategists and dopesters. If you're trying to figure out when to expect the second front, just keep your eye on the banana counter. I find this a really fascinating viewpoint that the real gauge of war is whether or not you're getting bananas in your grocery store. Now, perhaps the saddest and most desperate part of the banana story was for those who had what was termed coliac disease, which is known as celiac disease today. At the time, it was understood that those suffering from the disease couldn't digest fats, starches, or most sugars except for bananas. So they were essential to celiac disease sufferers. The banana was not only nutritious, but it added much-needed calories and digestible fiber and sugars to their diet. One hospital in Montreal searched high and low for bananas and even called New York to see if they had any for a patient that they had. New York had some, and so the bananas got flown via airplane from LaGuardia Airport. This is an aspect of bananas in wartime that I never thought about, that they were such an important health food, um, not just because they considered them, oh, they're so nutritious and stuff, but that it was a really important part of the diet for sick people and also for babies. And not being able to get them could prove to be a really desperate thing. Now, by 1945, you can see a gradual increase of bananas available on the market. I found some ads from grocery stores advertising, yes, we have bananas. A North Carolina newspaper in January of 1945 said that a whole carload of bananas was put in front of a grocery store and people just popped up from everywhere to buy the bananas. And it was very possible a record was set for how quickly they sold. Now, a carload of bananas, I think they're I think they're referring to either like a wagon load or a train car load. <laughs> that is a lot of bananas. Finally, in July of 1945, newspapers announced that the banana was back, at least in Hawaii. <laughs> the armed forces weren't needing so much of their banana supply, so they were able to keep those bananas for themselves. Later in the year, more and more newspapers were declaring that bananas were returning due to a good crop and to the easing of shipping restrictions and boats being released from war duties, which the end of the war was gradually bringing about. Hooray, bananas are back! <laughs> Lucky Tampa, Florida had bananas in plentiful supply in December 1945, while other U.S. states to the north in Canada were still begging for bananas. So while bananas were becoming more available in some shops, they still weren't quite available for those farther reaches. But it was getting there. The war was over, military operations were winding down, and transportation was being freed up finally for these precious, precious bananas. So as we can see from this timeline, the availability of bananas during World War II in America was kind of a roller coaster. Many people had to do without bananas, but there were hopeful products such as dried banana flakes 
and powders and dried banana fingers uh, that really helped tide people over. I also wanted to mention that there was imitation banana flavoring that people could use if they wanted that banana flavor and no bananas were available. Now, in that newspaper about those lucky Tampa Floridians who had bananas in plentiful supply in December of 1945, it said in the article that the housewives were complaining that the bananas were too small and too ripe. But like the article said, it was better to have some bananas than no bananas. For today's cookbook feature, I actually wanted to talk about two cookbooks, but one of which I only made recipes from. The first one is something that may sound familiar. It's the Health for Victory Club meal planning guide. But this particular issue is extremely rare and super cool. This was a series of the the Health for Victory Club guides put into a small book. And it was specifically prepared by the Home Service Department of the Hawaiian Electric Company Limited. Now, it was this cookbook that made me suddenly realize, oh, wait a minute. Bananas were available during the war for some people. <laughs> and it's just one of those things that dawns on you like, oh, my gosh, that's so obvious that, you know, it's not just about like where I live in the United States and what happened here, but just the broader picture that sure maybe bananas weren't available in like Indiana very often in wartime but sure they were more available in the places where bananas grew so this particular issue is really special because of that and a lot of the recipes feature tropical fruits some of which probably were not available in the U.S. at all now they have this chart called build health with these common Hawaiian fruits and on the list is bananas. And under the season, it says available throughout the year. Supply in normal times exceeds the demand. So they're a very popular fruit on Hawaii. It talks about their nutrition value, how to use and prepare them. And it talks about different varieties of bananas like Bluefields, Brazilian, Chinese, and then apple and ice cream varieties. I'm not quite sure what they mean by the apple varieties, but interesting. These are all best to be eaten out of the hand. You can use raw as a breakfast fruit or in cocktails and salads. Prepare bananas just before serving to avoid discoloration. Immersing the peeled fruit in lemon, grapefruit, or pineapple juice enhances the flavor and also helps to avoid discoloration. They may be steamed, baked, or fried, or used in pies, cakes, cookies, and breads. When baked or steamed, they may be peeled or unpeeled. And when it comes to storage, it says picked when green but full size may be stored for a considerable time without injury to the flavor, should not be placed in the refrigerator until fully ripened and then only long enough to chill. When fully ripe, the yellow skin is generously flecked with brown spots. And then it has a few recipes featuring bananas like banana prune whip, banana honeys, banana ice cream, and minute tapioca cream. One of the variations is banana tapioca cream yum that sounds really good the main cookbook feature is a book called bananas how to serve them this was published in 1942 although i have seen earlier issues like 1940 
I wanted to cover some basic wartime banana tips that are really important when it comes to understanding wartime recipes for cooking bananas or even any vintage banana recipe. I did mention before, bananas weren't considered just a fruit. They could be used as a vegetable or a starch replacement. Now, when a banana was green, you just didn't touch it at all. But then when the bananas were yellow with green tips, they aren't fully ripe, but they can be used as a vegetable or starch at this point. They really hold up well when cooking with them because they're just more solid. Yellow bananas with brown flecks are ripe and good for eating raw or using in a dessert because the sugars have developed more and it's much sweeter. Bananas should always be kept at room temperature unless you need to chill them for a short time right before serving. You can use citrus like lime, lemon, grapefruit juice or guava or pineapple juice to keep bananas from browning. And it is important not to overbake bananas. Bake or broil bananas until they are tender or have a transparent appearance at the center. Cooked bananas should be served immediately and piping hot as standing spoils the flavor and texture. Now, I think this is a part of banana cooking that we don't really encounter very much these days. We don't think of like broiling a banana glazed with something sweet. Um, That's just not a dish that I've ever encountered. But it is, I think some of these recipes are definitely worth a try. Now, this cookbook demonstrates something similar that I saw in newspapers. Anytime there was an article talking about bananas, almost always they had tips on keeping bananas, using bananas, like when was the right time to use them for what purpose. Um, And this cookbook is no exception. This cookbook also has some really great illustrations. Their banana illustrations are awesome because they're all drawn like banana people. There are some really interesting recipes in this cookbook and that it's really it. Like it just has two pages of uh, tips and then it dives straight into the recipes. They all have pictures, which is really rare for a wartime cookbook for each recipe to have its own picture. Some of them I could definitely see myself trying. Others, not so much because tomatoes and bananas and cheese, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a fan of that idea. <laughs> but I wanted to tell you two of the recipes that I tried. The first one is for banana milkshake. This is a super easy recipe. And if you're going to try any vintage banana recipe, you might want to try this one just because it's so easy and there's a lot of variations. So you can really pick one that appeals to you the most. All you need is one fully ripe banana, so yellow with brown flecks and peeled, and one cup of cold milk. And in modern days, a lot of people don't drink cow milk, so you could probably use any milk of your choice. You slice the banana into a bowl and you beat it with a rotary egg beater or electric mixer until smooth and creamy. Then you press the bananas through a medium mesh wire strainer with a spoon. This is to remove any clumps and make the banana puree really smooth. Then you add milk and mix thoroughly and serve it cold. Makes one large or two medium sized drinks. Now this is where it gets interesting. The banana milkshake variations. They have banana chocolate milkshake, banana chocolate malted milkshake, banana frosted milk. This is where you add three tablespoons of vanilla ice cream before mixing it. Banana orange milkshake, Banana pineapple milkshake, banana spiced milkshake, where you just sprinkle nutmeg on top, 
and banana vanilla milkshake, where you just add vanilla extract. Now, I made kind of my own variation since I'm not supposed to have chocolate. <laughs> I just made a banana malted milkshake. So I added some malted milk powder and it was super delicious. After trying the banana malted milkshake plain, I did add some chocolate syrup so my kids could try the the chocolate malted version. But I think it was the general consensus that the plain was better. So this is super easy. And it also has two tips. For a colder drink, add about two tablespoons of crushed ice or ice cream. For a sweeter drink, add a little ice cream or plain sugar syrup. So adding ice cream is always an option. <laughs> anyway, the illustrations for this are also super cute. I will have pictures of this recipe on my blog, of course, because you just have to get a load of these banana people. <laughs> yeah, super easy. I think it, I made it in less than 10 minutes and it was delicious. I've even seen in some of the newspaper articles mentioning that the banana milkshake would be an excellent after school uh, snack for your kids. The second recipe that I made was banana pecan ice cream. This has been on my list to make for a really long time because it just sounds amazing. Uh, what it calls for is one cup mashed ripe banana. So this is about two to three bananas, two teaspoons lemon juice, a quarter cup sugar, a quarter teaspoon salt, a third cup milk, two egg whites, one cup whipping cream, two egg yolks, one teaspoon vanilla extract, and half cup coarsely chopped pecans. And it tells you to use ripe bananas, yellow peel flecked with brown. Now, I didn't have enough whipping cream, so I supplemented the cream I did have with whole milk evaporated milk, undiluted. And I used 1% milk because that's what we have on hand. You mix together the bananas and lemon juice. You add the sugar, salt, and milk, stirring until it's mixed. Then you beat egg whites until stiff, whipped the cream until thickened but not stiff, beat egg yolks until thick, combine banana mixture, egg whites, egg yolk, cream, and vanilla, and then you turn it into two freezing trays on of an automatic refrigerator. Um, I don't think any of us has that exactly. <laughs> But you freeze with indicator at the coldest setting, stirring every 30 minutes until the mixture begins to hold its shape. Then you add pecans during the final stirring. Then you freeze it until it's firm and it makes eight servings. It also has some very interesting looking variations. Banana peanut brittle ice cream. Yum. <laughs> I would definitely go for that. Banana walnut ice cream. Banana pineapple ice cream. Banana strawberry ice cream. Banana toasted coconut ice cream. Oh my gosh, I would eat all of these. <laughs> so I cheated a little bit on this one because I did not want to sit it in some freezing trays. I actually don't have room in my freezer for that. So I used our um, automatic ice cream machine thing, just the kind you um, freeze the canister because it's got a liquid in there and then you put it in and the machine like stirs it while it's chilling. So that's what I used. So I had it run through that machine oh I don't know like 20 minutes 30 minutes until it was starting to get pretty solid like firm for at least for one of these machines as cold as it can get and then I did put it in a container to freeze it took a quite a while to get solid and even then I could tell the ice cream was a little bit dry because it just doesn't have 
the level of fat content that we are used to in today's ice creams. But let me tell you guys, this ice cream was amazing. It was so good. It tasted like if banana bread was made into an ice cream, this this is what it would taste like. It was really good. And what's amazing is that there are no spices that we normally associate with banana bread, like cinnamon. There, There's not that in there, but you could totally add it. I think it would taste amazing. So this is a recipe I would definitely recommend for you to try. You just have to try this stuff. It's so good. And I think in the future, I will be trying some more of these banana ice cream variations, especially the peanut brittle. So to get these recipes, I will have them on my blog for you to try for yourself. And if you're feeling brave, I will be including a couple more very interesting banana recipes that you might want to try, like banana chicken salad. Mm-mm. Today's story highlight comes from the Pittsburgh Press from a newspaper article entitled Lucille Eats 15,000 Pounds of Bananas During Four Years of Strange Malady. This is the story of a six-year-old little girl named Lucille Tielsch, who was the fifth of ten children. Her father was recovering from a broken back after going to work for a defense corporation, and they were living on his weekly compensation. She was known as Pittsburgh's Banana Girl since 1940. This article was from December 1944. She earned this title by eating 15,000 pounds of bananas in those four years alone. She had two great wishes. One was to have a banana plantation of her own, and the other was to be a nurse. She was diagnosed with what at the time was the rare coliac disease, which is another term for celiac disease. She couldn't digest fats, starches, or most sugars, but bananas kept her weight normal and didn't upset her digestive tract. To keep her healthy, her doctor had prescribed a daily diet of two packages of gelatin, one or two eggs, dry cottage cheese, seven to ten pounds of bananas, and a glass of canned milk with lactic acid. However, due to the difficulty of obtaining bananas as the war progressed, her diet had to be rationed. Her nine siblings never asked for bananas because they knew she needed them to be healthy. Even their neighborhood helped keep an eye out for any bananas in the shops, and Lucille's mother made attempts to purchase bananas from the wholesaler, which sometimes was successful, but other times didn't always work. The article says, quote, The little girl doesn't talk much to strangers, but she whispered to the photographer as he took her picture that she had seen some awfully pretty nurses with curly hair at the hospital, and that she too would like to wear a white uniform and a nurse's cap. It was while she was telling of her ambition to be a nurse that a dull thud was heard, followed by a child crying. Lucille excused herself with little girl dignity and went out saying, Jimmy fell out of bed again. She often played nurse with her younger siblings and felt a keen responsibility for their welfare. Aside from her diet, Lucille lives like any other six-year-old child, likes to play with dolls, and goes to Sunday school. She entered grammar school this fall and likes it immensely. Sometimes, however, her playmates and school chums think it is strange when she refuses cookies and gingerbread, but she explains that she isn't allowed to eat them. She knows what she can and cannot eat and abides faithfully by regulations. Close quote. I found this story really fascinating. And what really caught my eye was there's a huge picture of her next to this article. 
sitting with a huge bunch of bananas in her lap, peeling a banana with this joyful look on her face. Bananas were something she had to eat, but she loved them. So she ate them any way that she could. And the fact that she ate 15,000 pounds of bananas in four years is quite astonishing. But, you know, while she had a really healthy appetite, she had to be very careful about what she ate. And I think this is really cool to see, you know, in modern times, we think of diseases and um, health issues that we have are new or somehow, you know, they didn't exist before. But in the case of celiac disease, this this was a thing. It's been a thing for a while now. But at this time, it was considered rare. So I just wanted to highlight this story because I just thought it was really charming that this little girl, you know, had this health condition, but she approached it with happiness and and just loved life. She did have to go to the hospital sometimes from um, a few weeks to a whole year. And uh, I'm sure these were really trying times for her. Now, this particular article was published by a group called the Old Newsboys. It was a group of 200 outstanding Pittsburgh professional, civic, and businessmen um, who would stage a campaign every year to raise funds for the boys and girls at the Children's Hospital. So she was one of their beneficiaries, and they would highlight them uh, in this newspaper in a series. And so her article is one of this series. So really cool story. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you or your family have American Homefront stories, I would really love to be able to share them on my podcast. To share your story, go to victorykitchenpodcast.com and click on Share Homefront Story. You can follow me over on Instagram. My handle is victorykitchenpodcast, and I would love your support, which helps keep this podcast going. To do so, go to anchor.fm slash Sarah Creveston Lee and click on support. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.